Okay, it's Ephesians 5, 1 through 21. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful to even speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening. I'm glad to be here and see all these friendly faces, and I'm uh, very glad to be here and worship with you. So before we jump into the text, uh, please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the opportunity as uh, the body of Christ to gather together and worship you, and uh, I pray that you would give me uh, words to say this evening and that they would be glorifying and honoring to you. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would work in our lives to help us see ourselves as you see us, and to seek to do that which pleases you. So we thank you for your word, and thank you for your ministry to us through your word. In Christ's name I pray. Um, before we jump into the text, uh, I'd like to review Ephesians, since today's text begins with a therefore. Now, we're not going to find out what the therefore is until we get to chapter 4, but I still think it would be very helpful to review what we've already learned in the letter. Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 deal primarily with doctrine. Now, before you put your fingers in your ears and start making funny noises, because you think doctrine is a dirty word because it leads to division, All the word doctrine means is that which is taught, a body of principles. And everyone, whether they recognize it or not, has a body of doctrine that they believe in. What I plan to do today during this sermon is relate to you what Paul teaches us in Ephesians and share with you some principles 
that I believe come from or are implied in the text about our relationship with God before Christ, God's saving work in Christ, and our relationship with God in Christ. Let's start with some facts or indicatives that are found in chapter 1. So you don't need to turn to these, but uh, I'll reference the verses for you. In in chapter 1, verse 4, Paul teaches us that God chose us before the foundation of the world. From eternity, before he ever created anything, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In verse 5, Paul teaches us that God predestined us. That is, he decided beforehand, again from eternity, to adopt us as his sons and daughters. A third thing Paul teaches us can be found in verse 6, that we have redemption and the forgiveness for our trespasses. In verse 11, we find that in Christ we have obtained an inheritance. And in verse 13, that we have received and are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who guarantees our inheritance. In chapter 2, in verse 4, we're taught that we're alive with Christ and saved by grace. In verse 6, we're taught that we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. In verse 15, that Christ has abolished the law of commandments for us. And this is really important. What does it mean to abolish the law of commandments? It means that we don't have to labor any longer to keep all the commandments as a condition of being reconciled to God. In chapter 2, verse 18, Paul teaches us that through Christ we have access to the Father. Christ is our mediator. And in chapter 2, verse 17, that Christ, the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, dwells in our hearts through faith. Great stuff, great facts. And beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul tells us, starts to tell us how we should respond to these doctrinal truths he has shared with us in chapters 1 through 3. He begins to give us practical advice, for those of you who are looking for practical advice, concerning how we should live or walk in light of these truths. In 4.1, Paul tells us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. This, by by the way, is the topic sentence for the rest of Ephesians through chapter 6, verse 9. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. In 4.2, Paul tells us to walk with humility, gentleness, patience, and to bear with one another in love. And in 4.17, Paul tells us not to walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And finally, as we get to chapter 5, Paul continues the use of the walk commandments in verses 2.8 and 15, which we will talk about later. So, What's the big deal? Well, the important thing for us to notice at this point is that Paul does not give us a choice concerning how we should respond to being justified in Christ. No choice. In fact, he uses 19 imperative verbs which express commands, exhortations, and prohibitions in 5, 1 through 21 alone to drive home the point that we as redeemed Christians must walk 
in a manner worthy of our effectual calling to Christ. All right, so let's look at uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 21. This is where Paul continues his practical advice concerning what that walk should look like. In the passage, Paul does a couple different things. One thing he does is he contrasts how we should walk on one hand with how we shouldn't walk on the other hand. And he also addresses the temptations we will face uh, as we attempt to live in a manner that is worthy of our new position in Christ. Let's begin by looking at verse 1. You can look at this. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. The therefore that begins this verse is there to draw out the consequences of Paul's last exhortation to the Ephesians and us that is found in chapter 4, verse 32, which reads, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore... Or in light of this commandment, we are to imitate God. And we can, in part, do so by being, again, kind to one another, being tender-hearted, and forgiving one another as God has forgiven us. But notice, we are to do so as beloved children. For those of us who have put our faith in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins... The commandments Paul gives us in this passage are not, and I repeat, not to be construed as a new set of rules we need to keep in order to earn our justification. Christ has already fulfilled all the commandments of the law on our behalf, and we are declared justified because of what he has done for us in our place. Instead, we are to remember that God has set his affection on us as his children, and we are already adopted. This means he will no longer punish us for our sins, since he has already punished Christ in our place. These facts completely change our motivation for doing and not doing all of the 19 imperatives outlined in this passage. Instead of trying to please God to earn our justification... We can seek to imitate God as his children who love him. In the same manner that a young boy imitates his father at the bathroom mirror by using a table knife to clear soap suds from his face. Or as a young child with their toy lawnmower follows their parent around the yard as they mow the lawn. These children aren't trying to gain anything from their parent. They are imitating their mother or father because they love them. In the same manner, Jesus tells us in John that those who love him keeps his commandments. If you haven't put your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, I need to remind you that you can't do enough imitating of God in keeping his commandments to justify yourself before him. Since it says in Galatians, you are cursed if you don't do everything commanded in the Bible, and even if you try, you still can't please God, no matter how hard you try, apart from faith in Jesus Christ. In verse 2, we see the first walk command in this passage. And walk in love 
as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So how did Christ love us? By being born into this world as a human in nature and suffering for us during his life and on the cross and doing this all voluntarily. His love was voluntary. Christ did not have to be pushed, pulled, or dragged onto the earth or onto the cross. He went to the cross voluntarily. And his sacrifice for us on the cross was fragrant to the Father because it was voluntary. He glorified the Father by accomplishing the work he had given him to do because he loved the Father. In the same manner, as people whose lives are not our own but have been bought with a price, we ought to love our neighbors and our enemies and our family members by being patient and kind to them, not envious or boastful, not arrogant or rude, not because we feel we have to, but voluntarily because they are people made in God's image. And we shouldn't insist on our own way when dealing with negotiables or be irritable or resentful around them. These are descriptions of love from 1 Corinthians 13. In verse 3, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. We We see our first contrast in the passage. The contrast exists in that sexual immorality, which covers all sexual sins, including uh, adultery, premarital sex, prostitution, homosexuality, uh, that is, any sex outside of the covenant of marriage, and all impurity or covetousness are self-indulgent, not self-sacrificial, as was Christ's love for us. Okay, let me say that again. They're self-indulgent. They're focused on meeting one's own needs instead of being other-oriented as Christ's life of suffering and death on the cross was focused on his love for us. Notice also that sexual immorality is an outward manifestation of this sinful nature, but covetousness, that is a desire to have what belongs to others, whether it be their possessions or their spouse, or a desire to have more and more of anything, deal with the inner person. And even though they may not manifest themselves in publicly, covetousness is still seen by God and is the equivalent of idolatry, since it is worship of things and people rather than God. As the verse says, these things must not even be named among you. In other words, People shouldn't be able to look at you and associate any of these sins with you. Oh, look, so-and-so, she's, or he's, or did you know she did that? Your reputation does matter because when you identify yourself as a Christian, everything you say or do or don't say or do reflects either positively or negatively, not only on you, but on Christ. A biblical example of this principle is Moses, a man who, as Hebrews 11.25 says, chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Moses, the man God used to bring the Israelites out of Egypt and to the promised land. In Numbers 20, 
We are told that Moses, when told by the Lord to assemble the people and tell the rock at Meribah to yield its waters, that's tell the rock, instead struck the rock twice with his rod. As a result, the Lord said to him, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land I have given them. Since Moses didn't represent God as holy before the people, by believing him and obeying him, he didn't get to enter the promised land, even though he had led these stiff-necked, rebellious people for over 40 years. And of course we know Moses went to heaven to be with the Lord when he died. Your reputation and the reputation of God do matter. Verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Also deals with behavior that is inappropriate among saints. When I use the word saints, I mean those who are positionally redeemed in Christ, not those who are perfect. So, what is to be included under the categories of filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking? A look at the context of the verse suggests these words, which are only used here in the New Testament, are to be understood in light of the sexual sins, uh, which we have already talked to. And it means, according to one commentator, a dirty mind expressing itself in vulgar conversations, which the text says is out of place. Notice that instead of vulgar conversations, there should be thanksgiving. Now, we all know that personally, we aren't always as thankful as we should be, um, in spite of the fact that we're commanded to be thankful many, many places in the Bible. So, the question is, why is it that we do not give thanks? Uh, Let me suggest some reasons why we aren't as thankful as we need to be. Number one, perhaps we don't appreciate what God has done for us. And another reason we may not be thankful is, We don't appreciate how unworthy we are of God's grace. Paul does a great job in Ephesians reminding us of where we were before Christ. Listen as I review what he has written. In Ephesians 2.1, Paul says we were dead, not somewhat affected by, but dead in our trespasses in which we walked when we were followers of the prince of the power of the air, the devil, who all of us followed before we followed Christ. In Ephesians 2.1, he says, excuse me, in 2.3, he says, we were by nature, that is, at birth, children of God's wrath. And in uh, verse 2.12, he says, we were separated from Christ and strangers to the covenant of promise. Now, what's the covenant of promise? It's the covenant of saving grace in Christ. And we had no hope and were without God. So, if we don't have an appreciation for where we've been, we probably won't be thankful for where we are now. And even if you've always thought of yourself as a good person, these verses say you desperately needed to or still need to be redeemed. Another reason we may not be thankful 
is because covetousness or greed is closely related to a lack of contentment. We think more friends, a bigger house, more leisure time, or more money, or being uh, thought more highly of by others will make us happy or happier. They won't. Looking for happiness in these ways is idolatrous as it replaces God as the object and the end of our affections. A final reason, at least the last one I'm going to share with you, why we might not be as thankful is that we take credit for the good things God has provided for us when God deserves the credit. The best example of this is our salvation itself. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, We're saved by grace, that is unmerited favor, through faith, and that, which refers both to grace and faith, is not of ourselves, it's a gift of God, not by works, lest any man boast. Remember, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And even if we feel like we've worked really hard for everything we have, 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, What do you have? Whether it be skills, intellect, money, personality, perseverance, whatever you want to fill in for the blank, what do you have that you did not receive? If you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So if we keep in mind where we've been and how we've gotten to where we are, we have much to be thankful for. Moving on to verse 5, we are given the consequences for living a sexually immoral or impure life and being covetous. The one who does so will have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, for us to understand this verse, there are a number of things I think we need to keep in mind. Uh, Number one, the first thing. Those whom Christ has died for, those he chose from eternity, are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, keeping God's commandments and doing good works are expected by God of his redeemed children. They're expected of us. As it says in James 2.17, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So we need to remember, doing good works and keeping God's commandments, although they don't contribute to our justification, are evidence of authentic faith in Christ. A second thing we need to remember is when we repent of our sins and place our faith in Christ, our old man, our sinful nature, the flesh, does not die. But we are without hope since the Holy Spirit causes a new spirit of life to spring up in us, a new man, the Spirit, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And the same Holy Spirit is at work in us to conform us to the image of Christ, that is, uh, work out our salvation for his good pleasure. So, there will be evidence of living faith in our lives If we are indeed Christians, since those whom God justifies, he also sanctifies. That's the good news. Those whom God justifies, he also sanctifies. Third, during our lives, our two natures clash and will continue to do so until Christ returns and we're finally freed 
once and for all eternity from sin. And I would suggest uh, for a more detailed description of the struggle between the flesh and the spirit uh, that you read chapter 7 in Romans. It probably wouldn't hurt to read the couple chapters before chapter 7 and the couple after chapter 7. But going on, um, so what separates, and this is an important question, what separates those who actually have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God from those who don't? Since all who profess Christ will continue to sin in spite of their best efforts. The thing that separates those who are sons of God and have an inheritance in heaven, even though they sin, from those who aren't sons and don't have an inheritance in heaven when they sin, is how they respond to their sin. How they respond to their sin. Those who respond to their sins with shame and repentance, that is, turning from them, and have faith in Jesus Christ, will inherit the kingdom and be adopted children. Those who continue in sin without shame and never repent will not inherit the kingdom. Their faith is not a living faith, but dead faith. In verses 6 and 7, we're warned that there will be people, and they might be friends, uh, neighbors, people you work with, or even family members, who will try to deceive you into thinking that there's really no need to live holy lives. After all, Christ has not returned as he promised he would, and these same people don't believe that there really are any temporal or eternal consequences from God for how they think and how they act. Only natural consequences if they happen to get caught. Verse 6 calls these people sons of disobedience. And it's a term that Paul used earlier in Ephesians to describe those who live habitually in disobedient sin without repentance and follow the prince of the power of the air. So these are people that are unredeemed. In light of the attempts to deceive us, that we well face, verse 7 says we should not become partners with them. Not that we shouldn't have any contact with them, uh, for if we didn't want to have any contact with them, we'd have to leave the earth, but that we should not join them in their sin. Going on to verse 7, the therefore in verse 7 introduces in verses 8 through 14 why we should not become partners with the sons of disobedience. Because what we once were, we are no longer. Notice first in verse 8, the contrast between darkness and light. At one time you were darkness, but now you are light. Not only were we in darkness, and now in the light, but we were darkness, and are now light. The terminology suggests that it's impossible to stand on the sidelines of life and root for either Jesus or the devil. Whether you or I like it or not, we belong to either God's camp, where light stands for life and salvation, or the devil's camp, where darkness stands for being spiritually dead, ignorant, alienated from God, and the object of God's righteous wrath. There's no such thing as neutrality regarding Christ. 
Verse 8 also includes the second walk command of the passage. Walk as children of light. This walk command, like the other walk command in the passage, is tied back to Ephesians 4.1. Walk in a manner worthy of, the, worthy of the call to which you have been called. Verse 9 tells us how to know whether or not we're walking as children of the light. By looking at the fruit that is produced in our lives. Produced in our lives. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. So, what does the fruit of light look like? Verse 9 tells us it is all that is good and right and true. Goodness and righteousness and truth are literal fruit, but they also denote the results of walking in the light, the possession of divine qualities, not divinity, but divine qualities that reflect God himself, as identified by Paul earlier in Ephesians 4.24. And since the Holy Spirit is at work in us to conform us to the image of Christ, the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, listed in Galatians 5.22, give us a good idea of what it will look like if we walk as children of the light. Verse 10 tells us that walking as children of light also includes trying to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. The word discern here means to put to the test or examine, that is evaluate, so as to determine what course of action will please the Lord. Romans 12.2 uses the same Greek verb and tells us that we need to be transformed, that is, reprogrammed in our minds, which is, by the way, a lifelong, ongoing process, to be able to discern what the will of God is, what God wants of us, and what is pleasing to him. So how does that renewal, that reprogramming of mind, come about? By the Spirit's work in us through the Word, which 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 tells us is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work, which is in the end what pleases the Lord. There's no way around it. If you want to walk as children of light, you need to be in God's word. Notice also in verse 11 that walking as children of light not only includes producing the fruit of light, but also excludes taking part in the unfruitful works of darkness, which verse 12 implies, referred to at the very least, the self-centered sexual immorality, impurity, or covetousness mentioned in verse 3. In a broader sense, remember that those who are in darkness, the unregenerated without Christ, are unable to produce any fruit that is spiritually pleasing to God, since everything they do is without faith in Christ. Verse 11 also says we should expose the works of darkness, which verse 12 says, referring to sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness, are so shameful that those who do them do not even want them to be brought out into the open. So the question is, how is it possible to expose works without speaking of them? 
Verses 13 and 14 answer the question. And it isn't by pointing out every uh, sin that a non-Christian does. Uh, That isn't how we expose works of darkness. Since it really isn't realistic to expect non-Christians to behave like Christians. Instead, verses 13 through 14a suggest that God uses the presence of Christians, you and I, around unbelievers to expose the works of darkness. Verses 13 through 14a read, But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Now, what does that mean? In 2 Corinthians 4.4, we're told that the God of this world, the devil, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And in John 3, Jesus tells us that we must be born of the Spirit, that is, be regenerated before we can enter God's kingdom. Remembering from verse 4 that the regenerated, you and I, are light, God uses our presence in the life of non-Christians to expose their sin, while at the same time he opens their minds to the light of the gospel of Christ and regenerates them through the Holy Spirit and gives them faith so that they too may become light. That's why it's so important that you and I walk in love and walk as children of light. In our hearts, honoring Christ, the Lord is holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks us for a reason for the hope that is in us, yet doing so with gentleness and respect. And this is why it's so important that you and I pray that God will work in the lives of unbelievers through us. Verse 14b, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Then as a reminder of how God has worked in us to awaken us from spiritual death through the gospel of Christ, and an encouragement that he can and will do the same in the lives of non-Christians we know. In verses 15 through 21, the last section of this passage, Paul instructs us concerning the last walk of the passage, commanding us in verse 15 to look carefully then how you walk, which literally means as you continue to walk. Paul then uses three sets of contrasts to instruct us how to walk in a manner worthy of the calling uh, to which we have been called. The first set of contrasts is in verse 15, walk not as unwise, but as wise. The second set of contrasts begins in verse 17, walk not being foolish, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And the third set of contrasts occurs in verse 18 with a prohibition to not get drunk and a command to be filled with the Spirit, which are contrasted to each other. Beginning in verse 15, Paul instructs us to walk not as the unwise, but as the wise. So what does walking wisely look like? Uh, If we define wisdom as the skill in the art of godly living, which isn't my definition, but it seems to be a pretty good definition, uh, Psalm 111.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom, 
And all who practice it have good understanding. In other words, if we're going to walk wisely, we need to fear the Lord. And to fear the Lord means that we have a reverent, reverent awe of God and also a conviction that they're both temporal and eternal consequences for what we think and what we do. So that's given us a pretty good idea already what it means to walk wisely. We can also get insights into what it means to walk uh, not as unwise but as wise by looking at the passage itself. In verse 5.1, we're instructed to be imitators of God. In verse 2, we're commanded to walk in love. In verse 3 and 4, we're commanded to avoid all sexual immorality and covetousness and vulgar conversations. In verse 7, we're commanded to not partner in sin with the sons of disobedience. In verse 8, we're commanded to walk as children of light. In verse 10, we're instructed to try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And in verse 11, we're commanded to take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but to expose them by being light in the world. Doing these things is walking wisely. Verse 16 also instructs us that it's wise to make the best of the time, because the days are evil. Now, there's no other place in the New Testament where uh, an expression like this one is used, but one commentator says similar terminology is used in the book of Daniel to describe the Chaldeans attempting to gain time before their death a death they were sentenced to because they were unable to tell Nebuchadnezzar his dream. So based on this meaning, and the the passage would mean, making the best use of the time means we should all manage our time in such a way that we grow better and better at walking in a manner that is fitting with the calling by which we were called. Other descriptions of what it means to be wise can be found in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. Um, what does the days are evil mean? This is a reference to the fact that we live during a time when Satan rules the earth, under God's sovereignty, of course, as we wait in anticipation for the return of Christ. The second set of contrasts explaining what it means to carefully walk can be found in verse 17. In contrast, being foolish, which is found in the commandment to not be foolish, with the alternative commandment to understand what the Lord's will is. The verse begins with a therefore, which tells us it is because the days are evil that we need to not be foolish. Now, The adjective foolish describes a fool, a person who is careless, lacks understanding, and despises wisdom. Such a person refuses to acknowledge their dependence on God. In other words, the way they walk corresponds to the person who is in darkness, the person without Christ. Therefore, the redeemed in Christ should not walk like they do. The flip side of being foolish is understanding what the Lord's will is. And again, Ephesians itself helps us understand what this means. From Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, we know that it was God's will to choose us. And in, to, and in love to adopt us as his sons through Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 1, 9 through 10, we know it was God's will to reveal the mystery that according to his purpose in the fullness of time, He will unite all things in Christ, 
things on heaven, in heaven, and things on earth. Something we can look forward to. Ephesians 1.11 tells us that having been predestined according to the purpose of his will, we have obtained an inheritance. And Ephesians 1.17 tells Paul prays that God the Father may give all the saints a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Christ. In other words, it's the will of the Father that we know Christ. We can also gain insight into the will of the Lord by identifying the moral standards of the Bible, including the 19 commands, exhortations, and prohibitions included in today's passage. And all of the moral standards of the Bible are referred to as God's revealed or moral will. So, the bottom line is, if we want to understand God's will with the end of doing what is pleasing to him, the best way to find out what his will is, is by reading the Bible while asking the Holy Spirit to help us understand what we read and use it in our sanctification being doers of the word and not just hearers of the word. The third and final set of contrasts explaining how to walk carefully is found in verse 18, where on one hand we're commanded to do not get drunk with wine, which would include uh, beer and hard liquor for those of you who really don't have a taste for wine. This is contrasted with the commandment to be filled with the spirit. So do not be drunk with wine, Be filled with the Spirit. And why shouldn't we get drunk? Because it's debauchery, which uh, is a fancy way of saying reckless living. Getting drunk can adversely affect one's judgment and lead to a loss of self-control, which can manifest itself in uh, immodesty, sexual immorality, and an uncontrolled tongue, all of which are characteristic of those who are sons of darkness. Since we're new in Christ and are light, we ought not to live as they do, but instead be filled with the Spirit. When Paul in this this context commands his readers to be filled with the Spirit, it means he's urging them to let the Holy Spirit change them more and more into the likeness of Christ which is consistent with the Greek syntax of the word, which means to be filled continually, on and on. Verses 19 through 20 give us four manifestations of being filled with the Spirit. They are addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, if we're continually being changed into the likeness of Christ by the Holy Spirit, we will not only be singing the praises of Christ to God, like we did before the sermon, but we will also be singing his praises to our fellow Christians. When you're singing, you're singing not only to God, but you're singing to your brothers and sisters in Christ. We will also be always and for everything giving thanks to God, since we know that he is our good and loving Father, 
who causes all things to work together for our sanctifying good. And we will be submitting to one another in a manner indicated in some verses that Brian and Dan will preach on in the coming weeks. So this passage does not uh, indicate what submitting to one another means. You'll find out what that is in 522 through 69. In summary, in light of the many blessings God the Father has shown us in Christ, including choosing us from eternity to be holy and blameless in his sight, adopting us as his sons and daughters, redeeming us and forgiving our sins, and giving and sealing us with the promised Holy Spirit, we have an obligation. We are commanded to imitate God as beloved children and walk in a manner consistent with the calling that we have received. Not in an effort to gain justification by keeping the law of commandments. Christ has already done that for us. But because we love God. In the same manner, a little boy stands in front of a bathroom mirror and shaves soap suds off his face with a table knife, which I hope, by the way, is not a sharp knife. Doing so isn't an option, but is the expected fruit of the new life we have in Christ. Walking in such a manner means we must walk in love as Christ sacrificially loved us and not walk in self-indulgent sexual immorality and covetousness. It means we must, we, it means, let me see if I can get that out. It means we must walk as children of light. So walk in love, and then walk as children of light, producing the fruit of light and being a witness to the darkness around us. And it means we must, must boy, I have a trouble with that, don't I? We must walk carefully, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time remaining before Christ returns returns. Walk carefully, not in foolishness, but understanding and doing the will of the Lord. And walk carefully, not in drunkenness, but continually being conformed to the image of Christ, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, remembering that the Holy Spirit has imparted to us new life in Christ and is at work in us to conform us to the image of Christ, and is at work in us to well and to act according to his good purpose. So today, like every Sunday, we're going to end our service by remembering and celebrating in thankfulness all that our Lord Jesus Christ has done for us during his life and on the cross. Being cursed for us, and satisfying the Father's righteous wrath toward our sin as a propitiatory sacrifice. If you've placed your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, please join us in dipping the bread and the wine at one of the stations at either the front of the church, the back of the church, or the balcony. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us, that you saved us in Jesus, that we are new creatures in Christ. We thank you also uh, for all these commandments that you give us, 
that you give them to us as beloved children. Not that keeping them we will be justified because Christ has already completed that work for us, but by keeping them we will please you. We thank you for these guidelines in terms of how to walk, and we pray that we would walk in them to show our love for you. And we thank you that you have given us the Holy Spirit to aid us in that walk. We thank you that the Holy Spirit is conforming us to the image of Christ and is at work in us to will and to act according to your good purpose. Thank you for all you have done for us in Christ. Amen.